0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry.
0: This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theories surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. So I've made it to episode five. I want to thank everyone who has listened to the previous episodes, and I want to welcome new listeners. This week, I'm going to talk about Rodney Alcala also known as the Dating Game Killer, for his rather strange appearance on The Dating Game. Let's go back to the year 1978. This is well before the age of Tinder and The Bachelor TV show. The Dating Game was a game show. Three contestants would be questioned as they sat behind a panel and viewed the audience but unseen by the questioner. The questions were loaded with sexual innuendos, and the show is quite cringe worthy to watch in today's politically correct atmosphere. In 1978, one of those contestants was Rodney Alcala. He appeared as a normal 70s guy huge lapels on his jacket, big hair. He was handsome. His looks were disarming. I'm sure viewers rooted for him to win. But little did anyone know he was a vicious rapist and murderer. Imagine you're watching The Bachelorette and that guy she's flirting with has bludgeoned someone. Rodney Alcala caught victims off guard by posing as a fashion photographer and asking to take their picture. Who doesn't appreciate that kind of attention? It had to have been flattering and exciting. One officer was quoted as saying he had the gift of gab that worked with the girls. I think the average guy, and I consider myself an average guy. You see an attractive girl in a bar, and you probably won't talk to her because you think she'll shut you down. Well, he wasn't afraid to talk to anyone. He could talk them into posing for his photographs, and it worked over and over. This is how he lured hundreds of women into vulnerable positions, killing an unknown tally. So he was born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Alcala, Bucor on August 23, 1943, in San Antonio, Texas. His father abandoned the family, and his mother moved Rodney and his siblings to Los Angeles when he was 11. Many think this abandonment had serious repercussions on his psyche. When he was 17, he joined the Army, serving as a clerk. In 1964, he had a nervous breakdown going AWOL, hitchhiking from Fort Bragg to his mother's home. At that time, he was diagnosed by a military psychiatrist to have antisocial personality disorder and was discharged on medical grounds. Later in life, various experts diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, malignant narcissistic personality disorder with sexual sadism, As we go on in the story, you'll see what a narcissist he truly is. After the army, he graduated from the UCLA School of Fine Arts. In 1968, he would commit his first atrocious crime. Eight-year-old Tally Shapiro walked to school every day. Her family's home had burned to the ground, and they were staying at the Chateau Marmont. She hated taking the bus, so she walked. One day, a car pulled up beside her. Tally told the man she didn't talk to strangers. He allayed her fears by telling her he was a family friend. In fact, he had a pretty picture he wanted to show her. So she got into the car. Luckily, a passing motorist saw the exchange and felt uneasy about it. The motorist followed the car and called the police. Vietnam vet, Officer Chris Camacho, vividly remembered the day. He knocked on the door of the apartment. Rodney appeared at the window, saying he was just getting out of the shower and he needed a minute to get dressed. Officer Camacho wasn't buying his story and kicked in the door. He was confronted with a gruesome sight. The body of little Tally was on the floor, covered in blood, her little neck under a 10-pound steel bar. She had been raped and beaten. The scene was burned into the officer's mind, worse than the horrors he had witnessed in Vietnam. While the officers devoted their attention to Tally, Rodney escaped out a back door. To their surprise, she wasn't dead, but clinging to life. She survived the attack. Rodney fled to New York and enrolled in a film school under the alias John Berger. He studied under director Roman Polanski, who taught him how to use the camera. Polanski would lose his wife, tragically, a year later to the Manson murders. In 1971, he got a counseling job at an all-girls summer camp for the arts. During this time, Cornelia Michelle Cryley, a 23-year-old flight attendant, was found raped and strangled by her own pantyhose in her Upper East Side apartment. Sadly, this crime would not be linked to him for almost 40 years. A very persistent cop named Steve Hodell could not forget Talley's case he lobbied hard to get Rodney on the FBI's Most Wanted list. He told the FBI that Rodney was a sadist of the highest order and would definitely commit more crimes. The FBI listened and issued posters. One of these posters made it to a post office and was spotted by two kids who recognized their former camp counselor, John Berger. He was arrested and extradited back to California. By this time, Tally's family had relocated to Mexico, moving after their misfortune. They didn't want to put her through testifying in court. Without a primary witness to testify, the charge of attempted murder wouldn't stick. Rodney pled to a lesser charge of child molestation. He was paroled after only 34 months under the indeterminate sentencing program. So at this time in 1974, the state government had a philosophy that convicts could be rehabilitated through education and psychotherapy. Instead of a judge deciding the prison sentence, it was left to parole boards. They determined if the inmate was successfully reformed. Thankfully, this indeterminate sentencing was ended by Governor Jerry Brown. Rodney was a free man, but barely two months later, He was rearrested at Bolsta Chica State Beach for assaulting and providing marijuana to a 13-year-old girl known only as Julie J. And in 1977, a parole officer granted him leave to travel to New York. So let this sink in. This parole officer let a man who has recently raped and assaulted two young girls the freedom to travel across the country. It's truly unbelievable. A week after arriving in New York, it's believed that he killed Ellen Jane Hover. Ellen was an aspiring painter and pianist who aspired to go to med school. She was the daughter of owner of Ciro's, a famous Hollywood nightclub. She was also the goddaughter to Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. In many articles, she's falsely labeled as an heiress. Her sister Charlotte said this myth was perpetuated by their father, in the hopes of keeping attention focused on her death. Ellen had been asked to lunch by Rodney, but refused. However, he was charming and persistent, and she relented. Her remains were found in a shallow grave close to where he once brought another girl for a photo session. Probably thinking the heat was off him, he returned to California getting work as a typesetter at the Los Angeles Times. He also kept busy convincing hundreds of young men and women that he was a professional fashion photographer and used them for his portfolio. He shared these photos with his co-workers, despite many of them being sexually explicit. The heat was not off of him because he was questioned by the Hillside Strangler Task Force because of his sexual offender status. The Hillside Stranglers turned out to be Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono, During a four-month period, they terrorized the community in the hills of Los Angeles. Their victims ranged from 12 to 28 and were raped, tortured, and killed. Rodney was cleared of any suspicion to his time in jail for marijuana possession at the time. And it was also around this time that he made his now infamous appearance on The Dating Game. Host Jim Lang introduced him as a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Like I said before, the show is full of sexual innuendos done in a wink-wink fashion. Bachelor number two was actor Jed Mills. For him, it was just a day of work. He was paid $400 for the day's gig. He remembered hanging out with Rodney in the green room. He described him as good-looking but creepy, and a very strange guy with bizarre opinions. Judd and the other contestant lost out to Rodney. Cheryl Bradshaw was charmed by Rodney's answers to her questions. The couple won tennis lessons and a trip to Magic Mountain. But when the couple talked backstage, Cheryl refused the date. She was too creeped out by Rodney. Some think his subsequent killings were due to this rejection. I highly urge you to watch a clip of the show on YouTube. It's really something to see. Rodney continued his reign of terror. In 1979, while posing for photos, 15-year-old Monique Hoyt was knocked unconscious and raped by Rodney. He then gagged her with a t-shirt he had shoved into her mouth. He had a pattern. Most of his victims were from age 8 to 31, They were molested, sodomized, beaten with a blunt object, and strangled. Being a sexual sadist, he took great pleasure in strangling his victims. He strangled them into unconsciousness, would revive them, and then do it all over again. Most of his victims were found carefully posed. He also took trophy items. A favorite was earrings. And earrings would play a pivotal role in his next attack. 12-year-old Robin Samso and her best friend Bridget were spending the day together. They had some time before Robin had to be at ballet class. She answered food at the school in exchange for free lessons. They decided to go to the beach and have a cartwheel competition. While there, they were approached by a man claiming to be a photographer, wanting to take their photos for a contest. I'm sure this worked for him every time. Girls at that age love to be told flattering things and hope that they can become a model or someone famous, and that's a dream. At that time, you're so insecure and just starting to develop. I had my own odd encounter at that exact age that disturbs me to this day. A guy called me on the phone at home, claiming to be a photographer, and he asked me all kinds of questions about my looks, what kind of bathing suit I wore, etc., And oddly, I answered everything, even when the questions went over the line and turned creepy. And then I finally stopped answering, and I got quiet, and he apologized and hung up. And afterwards, I felt really stupid and violated. But, you know, you're really so trusting at that age. So I can see how Robin and all these other girls fell for his excuses and charms. While he was talking to the girls, a neighbor of Bridget's sent something off, and asked the girls if everything was okay. Rodney quickly took off. The girls also left, Bridget leaving for home and Robin headed to ballet class on Bridget's bike, but she never made it. Her ballet teacher called when Robin didn't show up. Her little brothers rode their bikes looking for her. Bridget was able to provide police with enough details for a sketch of the man at the beach. Twelve days later, Robin's decomposing body was found 40 miles away at the foothills of the Sierra Madres by a fire crew. Police wouldn't let her mother see her. Animals had scavenged the remains until there were just bones left. Her front teeth had been knocked out in the assault, and this once-loving girl was reduced to bones. Police circulated the sketch, and Rodney's parole officer recognized him and informed police. Rodney had altered his appearance after the sketch appeared. His once curly hair had been cut and straightened. His girlfriend at the time, Beth Callaher, remembers him removing the carpet in his car due to a gasoline smell. And this girlfriend is a real piece of work. I watched her on a 48-hour special. She smiles as she recalls Rodney as sweet and loving. They bonded over their love of photography. She proclaims she had no idea what he had done and would never have suspected him of it. And that's fine, but don't tell the camera with a smile on your face like you're still in love with him. Rodney was arrested on July 24th, 1979. He denied ever being at the beach taking pictures. However, when a picture was published in the paper of a young girl on roller skates from his camera roll, he was busted. She and her other friends told a very similar story of being approached by Rodney with the promises of being entered in a photo contest. The girl said when he saw them, he zeroed in on them like a shark. Plus, it was the exact same day Robin went missing a few miles away. He didn't let Robin get away the second time he saw her on her bike. He was hunting for prey. Police searched Rodney's mother's home in Monterey Park where he was living with her. There they found a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. While in custody, his sister visited him, and unbeknownst to them, their interaction was taped. Rodney told her of the storage locker and asked her to get rid of what was inside. Authorities found out that he had rented the locker a mere nine days after Robin went missing. In the locker... They found a cache of photographs, as well as a silk bag containing ear. One size fits all seems like a good idea for
1: clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. To find out if it's right for you,
0: earrings. One pair matched the gold studs Robin had borrowed from her mother. During his trial in 1980, Rodney would try to say those earrings were his. He claimed to be wearing them on his dating appearance game show. It wasn't socially acceptable for men to wear earrings that much in the late 70s. Contestant number two, Judd Mills, testified that he would remember Rodney wearing earrings. He and 50 other people testified at the trial. Rodney was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. But that verdict was quickly overturned in a 5 1 ruling by the California Supreme Court because jurors had been improperly informed of his previous sex crimes. In 1986, A second trial, almost identical to the first, was held, and he was again sentenced to death. But a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel nullified the second conviction, in part because a witness was not allowed to support Rodney's contention that the park ranger who found Robin's body had been hypnotized by police investigators. Luck seemed to be in his favor. That was until Deputy District Attorney Matt Murphy came along. He was about the same age as Robin would have been had she lived. In 2003, he learned that cold case squads had matched Rodney's DNA to semen left at the rape and murder scenes of two women in Los Angeles. In 2004, he and prosecutor Gina Satriano worked to indict Rodney for the murders of four women after additional evidence and DNA was discovered. These four women were killed between November of 77 and June of 78. Jill Pargum, 18, had only been in Los Angeles a couple of weeks. The fifth child of 10 brothers and sisters had left her home in New York for LA. Her body was found rolled up like a ball on a remote ravine near Mulholland Drive. When she was found in 1977, It was initially thought she was a victim of the hillside stranglers. She had been raped, sodomized, bludgeoned, and strangled with a pair of jeans and a belt. Her body was posed on her knees with her face in the dirt. Georgia Wickstead, 27, was the middle child of three children raised by a widowed mother. The Malibu nurse was found bludgeoned in her apartment. She had been beaten with a hammer and strangled with her stockings. Charlotte Lamb, 31, was the fourth of eight kids raised on a farm in Ohio. She was found in the laundry room El Segundo apartment in 1978. Like the others, she had been sexually assaulted, strangled, but this time with shoelaces. Her family didn't even learn of her death until weeks later. Jill Parento, 21, had just moved out on her own. The shy and reserved girl was murdered six days before Robin Samso disappeared. Jill was killed in her apartment, strangled on the floor. Rodney left blood at the scene, cutting himself on a window he crawled through. All the bodies were found posed, and a pair of earrings found in the storage locker in Seattle matched Charlotte's DNA. During his incarceration between the second and third trials, Rodney wrote and self-published a book called You, the Jury. In it, he claimed his innocence and even suggested a different suspect in the murder of Robin Samso. He also filed two lawsuits, one for a slip-and-fall incident and the other because the prison wouldn't provide him with a low-fat diet. Third trial began almost 21 years after Robin's murder in 2003. Prosecutors entered a motion to join the charges in Robin Samso's case with the newly discovered four victims. His attorneys contested it. In 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled in favor of the prosecution. In February 2010, he stood trial for all five joined charges. This time, he acted as his own attorney. It wasn't a surprise. With a reported IQ of 135, he seemed capable. He played roles as both witness and interrogator. He addressed himself bizarrely as Mr. Alcala, speaking in a deeper voice. In the bizarre five-hour Q&A session, he told jurors in a rambling monotone that he was at Knott's Berry Farm looking for a job when Robin was kidnapped. He wouldn't talk about the other four new cases saying he didn't remember them, and one surprise witness at the trial was Tally Shapiro, his first victim. Now the mother of a teenage son and working as a personal chef, Tally courageously recounted that awful day. In a surprise turn, Rodney apologized to her. She simply turned away. The defense only had one witness, psychiatrist Richard Rappaport, who testified that Rodney's borderline personality disorder could explain why he had no memory of committing the four murders. Prosecution said he was a sexual predator and knew exactly what he was doing. It only took the jury an afternoon to sentence him to death for the third time. In January 2011, a Manhattan grand jury indicted Rodney for the murders of Cornelia Cryley, the flight attendant, and Ellen Hover, the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. In June 2012, he was extradited to New York. He pled guilty, citing the desire to return to California to appeal his death penalty conviction. In January 2013, Justice Bonnie G. Whitner sentenced him to an additional 25 years to life. The normally stoic judge broke into tears, saying, this is the kind of case is something I've never experienced, and I hope to never again. In March of 2011, police were confident that he had been involved in the case of Pamela Jean Lamson. The 19-year-old computer assistant had gone to Fisherman's Wharf to meet a photographer. She met Rodney at an Oakland A's baseball game where he gave her his business card. Her battered and naked body had been found near a hiking trail, just a few miles from San Quentin in 1977. The genetic materials on swabs were too disintegrated to use, but police say they had enough sufficient evidence to say he did the crime. His extensive photo album would also come back to haunt him. The Huntington Beach and New York City Police Departments worked in conjunction to release 120 of the photographs, and sought the public's help in identifying the people in them. 900 of those photos could not be made public because they were too explicit. In the first few weeks, 21 women came forward to identify themselves. At least six families said they recognized loved ones. One of those families was that of Christine Ruth Thornton, 28, who disappeared in 1977. Her family recognized her photo smiling, wearing jeans, and a yellow top, sitting atop a Kawasaki 500 in the desert. She was six months pregnant when she met Rodney. He met her during a road trip. Her body was found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming in 1982, but wasn't identified until 2015 when her DNA matched in the missing persons database system. Rodney admitted to taking the photo, but he denied killing her. He was reportedly too ill to be extradited to Wyoming to face charges. He's currently in a California state prison. What's left behind in his wake isn't just the victims, but their families. Jill Parento's sister, Deidre said, I'll never forget what it was like to see my mother, who always held her emotions in control, sob uncontrollably, over losing her youngest daughter. Georgia Wickstead's sister, Anne, said no one should have to suffer that way. Robin Samsoe's mother had actually purchased a gun and taken it to court, intending to shoot Rodney directly between the eyes. At the last minute, she thought of her daughter and could even smell her shampoo, and didn't pull the trigger. Robert Samsoe read a letter from the brother of Charlotte Lamb who was unable to return for the sentencing. The giant hole created when Shug, her nickname, was taken from us will never be filled, but we do have memories of a sister who graced our lives with decency and beauty for a while. These are just the families who know he took away their loved ones. Many people in this photograph still have not been identified. He could and most likely killed countless more You can still see the pictures online and they are haunting. Beautiful young people posing for what they think is their chance at stardom. You can only wonder how many suffered and perished at the hands of this deranged narcissistic murderer. My heart goes out to all those families. Hopefully more will be identified as safe, lucky enough not to be chosen as a victim to him. It had to have been easy to be swayed by his charm and smile. So, this was the fifth epi- episode. Thanks for tuning in. Find me on Facebook at Redrum Blonde and Twitter at, at Blonde Redrum. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate it. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you for listening.